Again, welcome. We are in week three of prayers. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I don't think I've introduced myself. Lead pastor here at, at Lower Town. And um, if you missed the first two weeks, that's okay. These are all kind of standalone sermons, even though we, we kind of have been approaching a specific text. Um, and so we are in week three looking at another uh, prayer. Um, I want to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Carlo Coriotti. I don't know how to say his name, but Coriotti. I'm not sure. Clearly Italian. Uh, not because he looks Italian, but because his name. That's what I meant by that. Uh, 1880. Uh, he, is most, he was born before that, but his most famous work was written in 1880. Anyone have any idea who, who this gentleman is? What he's famous for? Not famous. What? Well, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Anyone? Any guesses? It's connected with Disney. It's connected with Disney. Pinocchio. Uh, he is the original author of the story of Pinocchio. And, and, and a lot of you probably don't know this about this book, the story of Pinocchio, uh, which, which having now read it, um, is actually pretty close to what Disney has done with their adaptations. And, um, but, but in it, 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 he wrote it, he's a theologian actually, and he wrote it as an allegory of the Christian life. And, you, and when, you, when you re-watch it or read it, you, you're like, oh man, how did, I, how did I miss this, right? But Geppetto, uh, this master craftsman, uh, creates Pinocchio in the image of his other son. He had a, a real son um, who had died, we don't really know the story with that, but he creates this uh, Pinocchio in the image of his son. Right? It's like, oh man, I never really made that connection before. All right, there's just, okay, there's an analogy here of, of human beings being created in the image of God and, and, and Christ. And um, anyways, he, he, becomes, he comes to life and we talk about like free will and all these different things that he, he comes to life and he's now able to, to think and act for himself. Right? He's got no, he got no strings to hold me down, right? And that's that whole thing. Well, uh, Pinocchio, he, he goes to school. His father sends him to school, sends him out into the world, and, and all these things happen. He gets enticed, and he gets all these different things that are pulling at him, constantly uh, distracting him from the mission that his father set him out to do. He goes to this place called Pleasure Island and, and gets into all kinds of crazy stuff, drinking root beer that makes him feel weird. So I don't know if it's root beer, but whatever. Um, and uh, all, these, all these crazy things happen. Well, um, he's, he's lost, and, and the father, Geppetto, in, in the beginning of, of the movie or book or whatever, you can see he's, he's, a, he's a woodworker. He's got all these clocks and all these different things. And, and the newest one, the one with Tom Hanks, just came out recently. Um, uh, Tom Hanks plays Geppetto. And, and someone comes by the, the place and he's like, hey, sell me this clock. And he's like, no, I'm not, nothing's for sale. Right? I do this for me. It's, it's my joy. And I, nothing's for sale here. Well, when, when Pinocchio gets lost, he ends up escaping this realm of, of Pleasure Island and gets back home. And when he finds his father's house, he looks into the window and all the clocks and all these little wooden gadgets have been sold. They're all gone. And he's like, what is going on in this talking seagull? You know, all analogies break down. But this talking seagull is like, um, your, your father, he, he sold everything to go buy a boat and find you, right? And you're like, oh my goodness, like that's... That's the Christian life of the Father pursuing us, right, actively. And so uh, Pinocchio then goes out, and he's trying to find, find his father, and the seagull is like pulling him on skis, kind of, but his, his, whatever, he floats. And, and, and so you have um, then Geppetto and Pinocchio get, get swallowed by this giant whale named Monstro, uh, and it's this really in, intense scene, you know, obviously in, in, in cinematography, but, but just the, the, the despair that, uh, that comes over Geppetto when he's in the belly of this whale. 
but yet he has a positive attitude because he's, he's with his family. He found his boy, right? It's kind of the scene that he's, Pinocchio's still uh, skiing towards, towards Geppetto on this little boat, and they get swallowed up, and, and Geppetto says this, we are all together again. Isn't it wonderful? But it is strange to be in the belly of a whale, <laughs> but we will make do, right? There's just this attitude of like, hey, we're, yeah, we're gonna die, but that's okay because we're going to die together. There's something about, about being together. And, uh, and then Pinocchio, noticed, he says, but your boat, your boat is still there. And Geppetto's like, yeah, it's a, it's a good little boat. And then he says, Pinocchio says, well, as soon as Monstro opens his mouth, we can, we can sail out. And then Geppetto says, well, I don't know about that. And look at all this stuff around us. It seems like everything that goes in his mouth never gets out, except the other way, presumably, but that is not a good option, <laughs> right? That's... That's what happens, right? And so uh, there's just this, it's just a really cool analogy of the Christian life. So maybe you would be like, oh, man, I've watched this. I've read it. Uh, don't watch the cartoon. I, I, have like, I had like nightmares about that when I was a kid. Um, the new one has toned down the, the craziness of it. Um, and so I, I bring this up because they are, they're doomed. They're doomed in the belly of the whale, and yet there's a glimmer of hope because they're together. And so maybe you can figure out what prayer I'm going to get to and what we're going to be looking at this morning, and that's going to be Jonah. Jonah chapter two, looking at specifically at verses one through nine, and it's titled, Someone Greater is Here, and that's gonna be the words of Jesus that we'll get to in Matthew chapter 12. But before we jump into the text, let me, again, as always, give a little bit of context when we look at a passage. So I'm gonna be going back to Jonah chapter one, verse one, it says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amatai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness has come before me, has come up before me. And so uh, who, what is Nineveh? And, and, and I don't know what you've heard. Maybe never, I've never heard of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were like arch enemies of the Israelites. They, they destroyed Israel and destroyed Jerusalem. They captured and enslaved the Israelites. They, they do not like each other at all. Right? Assyrians, bad Israel good. That's just kind of how, how it is played in the uh, Old Testament. And yet we have Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. He is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. The thing is, up to this point in the story, the Israelites are God's chosen people. And, and so in order to be part of God's chosen people, you had to become an Israelite. You had to join their group, join their camp. And yet that's not the way God had prescribed it. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, the Abraham, the father of the Israelites, and he calls him to follow him, he says, all nations will be blessed through you. And yet Israel kind of forgets that and they, they set up their own community. It's all about them and then God calls Jonah and says, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. Preach to your nemesis. And, and the Ninevites are not Jewish. They're not Israeli. They're not Hebrews. And so this is God specifically calling Jonah to be a, a missionary to a Gentile nation, someone other than Jewish in ethnicity. This is, a, this is a very important aspect that's happening here. The first missionary that's sent to the Gentiles or the other nations. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And I don't, again, I'm not a, geography's kind of fun. I don't know if you guys have found the new, uh, it's called Worldle. You know what I'm talking about? It's not Wordle. 
And so it just gives you a, an outline of a, of a country, and you got to guess what country this is within five guesses. It's kind of fun if you like geography like me. Anyways, Joppa, you can see it there on the map if, if, uh, if you can uh, see this image. But Joppa is right by Israel. And then there's very clearly, okay, so Nineveh is going to be, right, northeast, 550 miles. That's not a small trip. That's not a short journey. Again, they don't have airplanes. They don't have cars. He's going to walk this on foot or he's going to have to uh, get on a cart or get on some kind of horse or donkey and make that trek. It's not a small journey. All right, so 550 miles, but instead he goes to Tarshish, all the way over there in the Strait of Gibraltar. It wasn't called Gibraltar back then, but he's going over there to that uh, the south end of Spain there. It's 2,500 miles. That is a very long way. So God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Assyrians and preach them and tell them they need to repent or I'm going to destroy them. And he's like, mm, I'm out. And he goes completely the opposite direction. So keep that in mind as we continue to read. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, right? They're in the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his own God, right? They're, 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 we don't know what kind of gods they're praying to, some kind of pagan god, or maybe they had idols, but they're, they're crying out to whatever their gods are, save us, we're going to die. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So it's pretty, a pretty dire situation when a crew who's literally their job is to carry cargo and then sell the cargo at a port is saying, hey, forget money, forget our, 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 our paycheck, we gotta survive. What's the point if we don't even survive this storm? But Jonah, <laughs> but Jonah had gone below deck where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain, captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call to your God. Right? He doesn't know who Jonah is, doesn't know his God, and maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. It says, and then the sailors said to each other, right? So, so what we don't see and hear here, here audibly at this instant, is Jonah praying. So even the captain's like, Jonah, you gotta pray. We're not led into any information that makes us think that Jonah does this at this point. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. Right? What kind of work do you do? Right? Where do you come from? What is your country and from what people are you? They're asking who is your God? Because that was synonymous. Where you're from, what city you're from, what people you're from is synonymous with what God you're worshiping. And so, hey, there's something, you're different. Something is different about you. What kind of God do you worship? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what'd you do, right? What have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told him so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. It will be calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Again, take notice that nowhere in here do we get any inkling that Jonah is repentant. That Jonah is like, hey, let me just pray to my God, actually. Let me, 
let me repent of my wickedness and maybe this calamity will go away. No, he's like, just kill me. Kill me and then I don't have to go do this thing that God has called me to do. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord. Then these pagans cry out to Yahweh, right? So, so again, Jonah hasn't prayed, and now you've got people praying to Yahweh, to the God of Jonah. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So here, in this moment, they, they recognize the power of God and of Yahweh, this God, this Hebrew God of Jonah, and they make sacrifices to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So what can we learn? We haven't gotten to the prayer yet. We'll, we'll get into that. But, but so far, what's the purpose of this text? What's the point of Jonah? Well, is the purpose for reading this story some kind of moralistic fear? Or do, do better, work harder, try harder. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, we used to listen to this music called um, by, by a guy named Patch the Pirate. Anyone know Patch the Pirate? Any Patch the Pirate fans? No? Oh, man, I thought, I thought I could count on you, Tim. No patch of pirate. All right, let's about par for the course. I was like, I don't, I don't know what childhood you had. I don't either. It was weird. Um, but we listened to these, uh, these, uh, this, this guy called Patch the Pirate. His actual name was Ron Hamilton. Uh, he had lost an eye to cancer, and he wore a patch and was like, I'm going to write kids' music. No, I don't. So he did. Uh, and he wrote all these songs, but one of them was about Jonah and the whale. And it, and it went like this. It was like, uh, Jonah, Jonah, did not obey God immediately. Jonah, Jonah, down in the depths of the deep blue sea. Okay, and it was, that, was the, that, was the, that was the chorus. But the first verse, as a small child, struck fear <laughs> into my soul, right? And it was, if you try to run from God, and then everyone would go, beware, You'll discover, too, that the Lord above is everywhere, watching all you do. And it was like, oh my goodness, I don't want to die, right? That's, that's how, that's how it, it was. It was fear. And as, and as we read the story of Jonah, is that the point? No, right? And, and, and it shouldn't be for Jonah either. Jonah shouldn't repent because he's about to die. That's not the point of this text. And I think as a parent, uh, now that I've got older uh, kids, that as you're trying to, if I want my child to obey and do what's right and good, I don't want them to do that because they're afraid of me. Some of you probably had an upbringing like that. I know I, I did in some respects where there were times where I knew run from dad, right? Like you, like you go hide because you are about to get whooped. But then as I got older, all it took for my dad was just that look. You know what I'm talking about? The, the dad look of disappointment because I knew he loved me and I loved my dad. And, and that, that did something, that, that motivation out of love to obey is far more powerful than a motivation of fear. 
So is that the point? I've got a, a quote here from Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, uh, from his uh, little, little book called Rediscovering Jonah. He says this, now when we see why we find grace, not at the high points of our lives, but in the valleys and depths, at the bottom. No human heart will learn its sinfulness and impotence by being told it is sinful. It will have to be shown. Often in brutal experience, no human heart will dare to believe uh, in such free, costly grace unless it is the only hope. It is a combination of hard circumstances, insight from the biblical gospel of atonement for sin, and prevailing prayer that can move us to wonder and amazement, even in the darkest places. I know I've shared this, I don't know when, well, years, years ago, but Anne uh, Steele, we sing her song, um, oh, why is it, I just went blank on it, uh, uh, I Need Thee Every Hour. I need the every hour. And she wrote that song when she was in a, in a, in a high place, and yet its popularity swept the country, right? Because people that were in a dark place were crying out, I, I need you every hour. And she said, I never understood the popularity of this song until her husband died. And then she said, oh, now I get it. Now, now I get it. And there's something about being made low where we can't even reach any, any further down that God becomes very real to people and starts to show up. Now, before we continue digging into this, I want to address the, uh, the whale in the room. See what I did there? Uh, last night, we were uh, praying before dinner, and Jack, my three-and-a-half-year-old, he, he has the best prayers, right? I mean, he, <laughs> like, he's a good prayer, right? Uh, and he, uh, he doesn't pray every but every once in a while, he's like, I'll pray, and it's like, yeah, man, go for it. And, and I quote, this is what he said, out of nowhere, I thank you for how heavy whales are. <laughs> and I'm like, he's still praying. I'm like grabbing my laptop. I'm like, I'm going to write that down. That'll... Thank you for how heavy whales are. What? Where's that come from? Now, here's, here's what I do want to say about this fish or the whale or the sea serpent or whatever this thing is. And I mean this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> this is not the point of the text. <laughs> It's not. There are two verses in Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the big fish that are mentioned here. It's not the point of the text, right? And a matter of fact, when we associate Jonah with the whale, it, shouldn't, it just shouldn't be that way. It should be Jonah and the wayward prophet, Jonah and the, and the, and the prophet to the Gentiles. That's, that's the point, Jonah, the somewhat kind of repentant prophet. That's far more of an accurate description than Jonah and the whale. And yet, at the same time, what do I think... It was, I don't know how much that matters to you or not, but I, I do think that this is a real story. I think this is an actual story that happens because if we look at God and, and doing something miraculous with a whale or a fish or however this worked, he did far more miraculous things, in my opinion, in the Bible. And so to go, ah, I don't know about this. I don't know how this could have happened. I don't know. Scientifically, I look at this. I don't know how that happens. There was a lot of things. He raised people from the dead. And we're like, yeah, yeah, okay, that checks out. Someone gets swallowed by a fish, like, ah, no, that can't happen, man, I don't know about that. And then a big reason for this is Jesus actually talks about Noah two different times as a factual character, as, as a person that happened in history, as a prophet to the Ninevites. And when he does it, he, he says, as the same way that, that Jonah was in the belly of the fish uh, for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days. 
three days. And if that's not, if that's an allegory, well then how come Jesus' death isn't an allegory? And things start to break down when you over-allegorize scripture, even the scripture that seems improbable. So that's my, that's my take. So let's now go back to the belly of, of the beast. Just this morning, I, I had this, I could hear somebody saying in the belly of the beast, and I could not think what it was from. I kept Googling, I couldn't figure it out. And this morning, as I remembered what the phrase was from, it's from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and uh, Indiana Jones' buddy, the professor, is captured by the Nazis. He's in, in a tank, and he asks his Egyptian friend, like, where is, I forget his name, where's my friend? And he goes, in the belly of that steedle beast, right? That's this, and that, and that stuck in my head, but that's why uh, it's in the belly of the beast. That's what this is. And we're gonna hear now an honest prayer from, from Jonah. There's something about when, when somebody is broken and, and at death's door that they actually start praying honestly. Uh, I think of another Tom Hanks movie, uh, uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, when he plays Mr. Rogers. That there's someone dying. He goes over and he kind of whispers in his ear. And, and then the son later on comes up and he's like, what did you say to my dad? And, and he says, I asked him to pray for me uh, because there's no one closer that can actually see God until they're on their deathbed. Right, this, this is what's happening here. So now in our text, Jonah chapter two, it says, from the inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. In my distress, right? Not on the boat, not when he had plenty of opportunities to repent, to change, and he doesn't. It's not until he's in distress. Again, the captain ordered him to pray to his little G God. And now here at this moment, he says, I called to the Lord, my God. He prayed to the Lord, his God. Something changes when he reaches rock bottom. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. This is such a beautiful image that he paints here of despair. I have been banished from your sight. I am so wicked and evil, you dare not even look at me, and yet in my despair, in my hopelessness, I still will look to you because you're my only hope. This is the same kind of language Jesus uses as he's dying on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22, right? Psalm 22, he's quoting Psalm 22, and he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read the rest of that text, he says, yet, yet I will turn to you. I will look towards you. It's that kind of prayer. I feel as if all is lost, all is hopeless, and I feel like it's even God who's, who's turning his back on me and yet my trust will be in the Lord. That's what's happening in this context, in this prayer. The engulfing waters surrounded me. Seaweed was trapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. To the earth beneath, uh, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you... Lord my God, brought me up from the pit. 
Right? He, he paints this beautiful imagery of, of drowning, being at the bottom of the ocean and these waves and the torrent that's around him. These, he's dead. But you, my Lord God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, ebbing is just the word for the tide water flowing away. And so when my life was like the tide going out, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And then there's a kind of a shift in his tone here. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Right, there's something that shifts here. He's at the very bottom, and yet he still prays. What we looked at last week of God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I thank you that I don't worship idols like that person. I thank you that I worship the true God. There's something even in the belly of the whale in death and despair that he still is self-conceited. Again, Keller says this, in other words, despite his breakthrough here, Jonah has not grasped grace as deeply as we might at first think he has. There's still a sense of superiority and self-righteousness that will cause him to explode in anger when God has mercy on those Jonah sees as his inferiors. We're not going to go through the whole book. There's just a couple more chapters in Jonah. Read it on your own time. But God does that. He, Jonah preaches repentance, just says, hey, repent to Yahweh or you're going to be destroyed. It's all he seems to speak to them. And the whole city's like, we got to repent. God's going to kill us. And Jonah gets furious at God. He says, I knew you were a God of mercy. And Jonah sees these individuals. When God has mercy on those that Jonah sees as his inferiors, he sees the literal idols that the pagans worship and doesn't see the more subtle idols in his own life that keep him from fully grasping that he too, just like the heathen, lives only, equally by God's grace. So then he ends his prayer with what I have vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. There is no way out of the belly of the whale except presumably the other way and that doesn't sound like a good option, right? There's no way out. You can't do it. You can't do anything to get out of the belly of the whale. You add nothing to the escape plan. This is not a passage, this is not a text about self-help and, and do better. Jonah didn't obey God immediately, and so you, you better do this. You better pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is not that. This is not be better, do better. This is not moralism that God sees you all the time like Santa. We decorated, we had a Christmas tree up. We did it, we did it last night. This is not Santa. This is not Santa rewarding you for good or being on the naughty list. That's not what Jonah is. This is a God who sees us, who sees you in the belly of the whale, of your whale. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize or over-allegorize this text, but I think that there are those of us in this room who have been in the belly of a whale, are in the belly of a whale, or will be in the belly of a whale of our own despair and defeat and death. And our God looks at us and he sees us and he hears us and he hears our cry of despair 
And what's beautiful about it is he not only makes a way out, he is the way out. He is the only way out. But he doesn't just see and hear our despair. He knows it. He feels it. He took on flesh and he was in the belly of a whale. He was at death's door. He empathizes with our weakness. In Matthew chapter 12, oh, 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 oh. That's just a picture of that. I didn't miss anything. I said everything I wanted to say. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this. Or, or the passage, Matthew says this. And some of the Pharisees and teacher of the, teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He, he has, up until this point in Matthew, performed a lot of signs, a lot of miracles. He's already fed the 5,000. He took two loaves and five fishes, and he prayed over them, and he broke them, and was able to feed over 5,000 people. Teacher, we want a sign. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. You, th you think Jonah being swallowed by a whale and coming out and preaching the gospel to our enemies and them repenting isn't a good enough sign? You think Jonah had anything to do with that? It's all God. He's here. I am here. Something greater than even that is here. And he continues with the same kind of line of thinking. The queen of the south will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. Queen, queen Sheba and she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? I am the sign. I'm right here. Jonah was delivered by the hand of God, and so will I. I've shared this uh, numerous times, but... On Monday morning, we have a, a Zoom call uh, where um, several people on staff at Hope, um, we, we just talked through the text, and, and, I, and I believe it was Pastor Davis from, from downtown. He'd, he just says that there's got to be a way to normalize the whale. And I just love that, that phrase of normalizing the whale. And again, not making the whale seem less miraculous in the, in the story of, of Jonah, but meaning for us, what is our whale? And someone had mentioned, uh, and I've, we've talked about Dane Ortland before. He's a pastor in the United States. Actually, is he in the United States? Sure. He's, he's a pastor on this earth somewhere. Uh, and uh, we recently, a lot of us, we read his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. It's the same uh, pastor author who wrote that. And apparently they have this phrase that they use at their church that is gospel plus grace plus time. There is no like equals, equals sanctification, equals uh, whatever. There's no equal. So if you're like, what is the equals? I don't know. He doesn't give one. But the life of a believer is applying the gospel and showing grace when I don't believe the gospel and then giving some time. Right? It can't be Jesus plus, okay, but now I can do this. Jesus and I got to figure out my way out of my whale. I can do this. 
It's not Jesus is the answer. And he's given me grace to overcome this the same way uh, when, when, when the Apostle Paul cries out, God, remove this thorn from me, and Jesus shows up to the Apostle Paul and he says, um, no, I'm not going to remove your thorn, but my grace is sufficient for you. And so, we, yeah, we get that. Gospel is the answer. Jesus' grace is sufficient for me, but I want it now. I, I need this to be fixed now. Gospel plus grace plus time. There are those of us in this room that maybe will be in a pit of despair or in the belly of some whale for the entirety of our lives. Jesus is the answer. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But again, it's wild that even in the belly of the whale, Jonah still has the superiority complex. Doesn't that sound, it, sound, it sounds like me. Well, it sounds like me that when I'm man of Jesus, the gospel, Equal, equal at the foot of the cross, that everyone is, is loved by God, but holy cow, you're evil. You're wicked. You voted for whom? You didn't vote. What? You, what are you talking about? Wait, you're vaccinated? Well, you're not. You, right? Hey, Jesus, answer. You don't think like me? You don't act like me? Whoa, you are an ignorant fool. We do this. This is exactly what Jonah does. Grace, God, you saved me. I will keep my eyes on you. I thank you that I'm not like these people. Why do we do this? Why do we act this way towards others if they're not like us, if they don't think like us? Why do we do this? Every couple years um, at Hope, we have this um, ministry that's called Mission 1618. It's just a local kind of church planning initiative and um, every couple of years, though, we do this thing called a non-conference conference, where we usually bring in a pretty uh, well-known speaker. Several years ago, we brought in Dwayne Bond, um, pastor, author, and we did gospel and race. Um, and then several years ago, we had Ed Stetzer come in, just uh, another pastor, um, pro uh, professor down in Wheaton, uh, Illinois, and he talked about church stuff. I don't remember exactly what his talk was, but just this past Wednesday, uh, we had brought in, and I, and I, and I apologize, I, I forgot to put this in the weekly email, uh, but on Wednesday night, uh, we had brought in this author, Dave Zoll, um, who wrote a book called Low Anthropology. Um, and kind of the theme of, of uh, not just that night, Wednesday night, but then Thursday, all day Thursday, was kind of this um, non-conference conference. We just take the parts of conferences we like, and we keep it small, and, and let the speakers be honest. No one's recording anything, and they can just say what they want to say uh, without any repercussions. Um, and so we, uh, we did this, and the, the theme was how not to hate people. Right, that was kind of the theme of the, of the day. And David Zoll, though, he um, uh, is the founder and, and, and guy who does a, something called the Mockingbird Ministries. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, every time I hear it, I have to sing mock, yeah-ing, yeah, bird, yeah, mockingbird, yeah. Low Anthropology is the name of his book. David Zoll writes this, and again, what is anthropology? Anthrop anthropos is the Greek word for, for humanity, and so ology, just the study of humanity, um, our human condition, and so this is a low anthropology. His father apparently coined the term, and so what's interesting is I, I bought the book after hearing him talk about it, and I'm gonna quote three different people, and none of them are David Zoll, <laughs> okay? So I'm quoting people that he quoted to kind of explain this idea of low anthropology, but to to, to Explain low anthropology. Let me explain high anthropology. This is uh, 
uh, Steve Jobs, he's giving this speech at a uh, graduation uh, from Stanford, and he says, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow know what you truly want to become, right? Just, that, that's a high answer, Paul. It's a high view of humanity. What, what's in your heart and your intuition, right? They, they know what you want to become, so just do it. It's there, right? You have all the tools you need. Just pursue that, and that sounds really good, this idea of, of high anthropology, but the problem is that when somebody then doesn't do that, well, then they somehow didn't listen to their intuition. They're, they're less than. They're not actually following through. This is evident with high anthropology uh, within comedians. When comedians tell jokes, but they do it at somebody else's expense, ha-ha, you might get some laughs, but you feel bad laughing. Right, there's something about this high anthropology because I'm superior. I've got it figured out. I'm glad I'm not like that individual who went to that school who thinks that way. That's a high anthropology. It, 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 it seeps into so much of our culture. Low anthropology uh, by Anne Lamott. She said this, very similar in a very similar situation. Everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared even the people who seem to have it more or less together. They are much more like you than you would believe, so try not to compare your insides to their outsides. He gave the example of Taylor Swift, my BFF. Uh, it's an inside joke. If you're like, what? I don't know Taylor. That's what I call her. Um, uh, <laughs> she, she has this new song, uh, which is called The Antihero. And, uh, and the, a couple, we, they actually did a cover of it. Uh, and, and the whole point of it is, it's me. I, I'm the problem, right? And there's something, again, that's kind of endearing when you hear songs like that, when you hear comedians like that, that are more self-deprecating, right? Oh, yeah, I did this stupid thing the other day. Again, on, on TikTok the other day, <laughs> there was this guy who, uh, he's walking around, he's walking around in, this, in, in Walmart, and he goes, I, I, he's got you know, the camera facing me, because I, I had to get something from Walmart, I needed an ingredient for something, and I... And I realized I'm wearing camo, I just got done hunting, I'm wearing gray sweatpants, I'm wearing Crocs with socks, I've got a hot sauce stain on my shirt, and I realized I am them. I am the people that shop at Walmart, right? That's funny, it's funny because he's, he's that's, that's a low anthropology. And that's what we need, why? Because when we have this high view of humanity, then when somebody's not doing what we want them to do, then they are then bad, they're evil, they're ignorant. But a low anthropology says, all of humanity is fallen. All of humanity is broken. I don't have it all put together. And so my neighbor who is doing this crazy thing to me, they're broken too. They don't have it all put together. We all need Jesus. Another last quote here is from a gentleman by the name of Brian Stevenson. He's a, um, a lawyer and this is from his book, Just Mercy, but he is a lawyer who advocates for men on death row. That's all he does. I don't know if that's all he does, but that's, you know what I'm saying. But he says this, he has a low anthology and a low anthology of when it comes to his clients. And so he says this, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and we have been hurt we all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. I desperately wanted mercy for a specific individual, a client, but I couldn't pretend that his struggle was not disconnected from my own. 
our shared brokenness connected us. Our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. There are those of you right now that are in the belly of a whale. And you can't look at somebody else and go, man, they got it all put together. I didn't get the memo. I didn't read the right book. I, I'm screwed up. So are they. And again, this isn't like, well, woe is us. Like, what woe is us? That's yeah, a phrase people say. Woe is me. Woe are all of us together. We don't have to. Well, I guess there's no hope. No, there is hope. And that's the whole point of this, that even in the belly of the whale, it's Jesus. I zoomed in on the artwork of, the, of his cover. He was explaining this, that he just wanted a magician who's you know, kind of pulling the tablecloth out, and he's, and he's doing this very poorly. Things are flying everywhere, and yet he was explaining the artwork, and he said, and yet I wanted something to be done right. And he's like, so I put an Easter lily that remains alone on the table. When we're in the belly of the whale, you can do nothing to earn your escape. When you are in the pit of despair, you can't just muster up enough strength and courage to keep it, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the sign. He is the one who conquers death. So in gospel application, can we normalize the whale? Can you recognize that I'm in despair? I'm hurting, I'm suffering. It might not be the way you're suffering. You might look at the way I'm suffering and go, yeah, dude, that's nothing, get over it. But recognize we're all broken. Nobody's got it all put together. We all need Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And know that Jesus is the only way out. And then finally, again, just this thing that Dane Ortland does, just it's gospel and grace and time. Show yourself grace when you keep falling flat on your face. Because Jesus does. When you fall on your face over and over and over again for the same exact sin, he bends down and he lifts you up and he says, I love you. And then we sit there and we want to fight it and say, yeah, but I want it now. I want it to be fixed. I just want it to go away. He says, no, my grace is sufficient for you and it always will be sufficient for you. And it may not even be in this lifetime. We're going to have communion like we do every week here at Hope. And these elements aren't anything magical or, or special. It's just a wafer and juice. And yet it's a way for us to remember the finished work of Christ. It's, it's a way to remember that whatever it is that we're going through, that Jesus went through it too. That Jesus was buried in the belly of the earth and rose again. He didn't stay there. He rose again so we can look to him who's the, our only escape from despair and from certain death and destruction. And so we get to partake of these elements, the bread that represents his body that's broken for us, his, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for our sins so that we can boldly as the Apostle Paul tells us, boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. We get to do boldly approach the Father, the Creator, and ask for help in a time of need. We get to do that because of the finished work of Christ. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church to partake of these elements, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're like, yes, I, I need this, I, I, I feel like I'm in a whale, 
but I know that Jesus is the only way out. I can't do anything. I can't just work harder and muster up and, and be a better Christian and that he's going to love me more. No, you can do nothing but have faith in Christ. And if that's you, then I would love for you to protect these elements with us this morning. The worship team's going to come up. They're going to sing two songs. And as they're playing, feel free to grab the elements, go back to your seat, pray, repent, cry out to God in an honest prayer. And then we will uh, close uh, together. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, who is seated, you are sitting down. You are not pacing around your throne room wondering what's going to happen to any of us. You know the outcome. But I pray as we looked at the first week that we believe, help our unbelief, that there are those of us who have been in the belly of a whale for a very long time. Would you allow us to see you for who you are and the grace that you offer us and to be patient with you working in our lives. And God, likewise, would we normalize the whale not only in our lives, but in other people's lives as well. To have a low anthology, to know that we don't have this figured out, but you do. And we all need you. And so would you help us now in our time of need. God, we love you. We thank you for all you do and all you're about to do. And it's in your son's name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.